Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. We are continuing in our series through the Bible cover to cover in one year, and we are currently in the book of Genesis. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 3, verse 14, and we'll pick up there in a moment. If you were with us last week, you know that we started into the drama of Scripture by examining the fall of humanity. Uh, and the disaster set in motion through human rebellion in the Garden of Eden. Humanity begins in this place of incredible intimacy with God and a place of privilege within the Garden. But as they rebel against God and choose to govern themselves, creation is plunged into chaos. And the very first signs that we get in the text that something is wrong is that after eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve hide from God and from one another. Relationships are fractured. They feel shame and regret. Uh, But we don't see the full impact of this moment until we continue on in the scriptures. We pick up in verse 14. Uh, For context, God has just sought out Adam and Eve. And Adam blames Eve for the mistake and rebellion. Eve blames the serpent. And now God is going to address all three. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. From this moment forward, Adam and Eve are ejected from the garden, cut off from the tree of life and God's intensified presence. And what happens from this moment forward is twofold. Life is hard and humanity continues to fall. Adam and Eve commit a rebellious act. They seize moral autonomy for themselves. And essentially what they're expressing is their desire to be their own gods. And as they do this, they experience guilt and shame and the shattering of relationships. But 
Humanity only goes downhill from there. If you look further down the page, Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel aren't just mean to each other. One murders the other. So within a few verses, we've gone from mistrust to murder. And in case you thought that was rock bottom, it actually gets worse from there. If you're looking down at your Bibles, by the time you get to the end of chapter 4, we read about a guy named Lamech who begins accumulating wives as if they were property, and he writes this lovely little poem at the end of chapter 4 about how he's far more vengeful than Cain ever was, and he's proud of it. From here, humanity begins to multiply, but their evil does as well. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 6, verse 5. This is the next page over. Here's where we arrive. This is Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Humanity has become so corrupt so utterly evil that every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. Which means they were basically living in hell on earth. For God to wipe out humanity at that point is not only just, I'll argue that it's merciful, it's loving. It's the best thing for everyone involved. And so God decides to hit the reset button on humanity, and he chooses Noah and his family, and he spares them from the flood. And for those of you who know the story, you know that after the floodwaters recede, Noah and his family are sort of commissioned by God in the same way that he commissioned Adam and Eve. He pulls this family together and he says, hey, we've got this fresh start now. Okay, so spread out across the face of the earth, rule over creation, walk with me, be fruitful, multiply, increase in number. Let's take this from the top. God forms a covenant with Noah and the very next thing we read is this. It says, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. This is fresh off the boat. When he drank some of its wine, he got drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Immediately afterwards, something shameful happens with one of his sons in the tent. And if you're tracking the storyline, your heart just kind of sinks. Because the post-flood world it certainly looks better 
than the pre-flood world. But somehow, evil has persisted in the human heart. It's survived the flood. And immediately, humanity is floundering in sin once more, wiping out evil people, or even all but the most righteous of people, is not going to save humanity or create a just world. It's going to take something more. Turn with me, if you would, to chapter 11, a few pages over. Chapter 11, if there was any question as to the nature and state of humanity post-flood, uh, the Tower of Babel sort of confirms our suspicions uh, that something is still terribly wrong with the human heart. And Noah and his sons have multiplied on the earth. Things appear better than they were before the flood. But the next thing we read is this really odd story about humanity building a tower. And I think there are hints buried in this text uh, that actually speak to the true human problem uh, that has persisted from Adam and Eve forward. This is chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower the people were, bu the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because where the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So, humanity has increased in number. Then they get this technology called the brick. And, and now they can build higher than ever. And so instead of spreading out across the face of the earth as God had commanded them to do, instead they do the exact opposite and they say, hey, let's all gather in one place and work together. And, and not work together to pursue God's vision for human flourishing. No, no. Let's work together to create our own version of human flourishing. They decide to build a tower that, quote, reaches to the heavens so that their name will be great. And there are at least two major problems with this goal. The first is that human beings were made in the image of God if you remember from a few weeks back. And in a sense, we were made to glorify God in the world. If humanity is functioning properly according to their original design in Genesis, uh, then God's name 
should actually be the one that is made great. But instead, they say, no, no, we'd actually like to make this about us. We'd like to make our names great. Who cares about God? We want to stay seated on the throne. We don't need God at all which is essentially what Adam and Eve said when they chose to mistrust God and take control into their own hands. Now, the second element of this story that I find fascinating is that some scholars point out that these people may have actually thought that they could build a tower to the heavens. Within the worldview of the ancient Near East, uh, most people generally believe that the sky was a hard dome that stretched over the earth. And so if you can imagine what the earth looked like within the ancient mind, it would have been a a flat earth with oceans or mountains around the edges and then a solid dome over the top. And this dome was strong enough to hold back, quote, the waters above that sometimes leaked down onto them. So there's waters above. We know that because it leaks and also because it's blue. But it's also strong enough to support the deity that lives there as well. So above this dome is the waters above and the heavens God's space, or the space for the gods, if you, depending on who you worshipped in the ancient Near East. And so in their minds, there was this hard dome, and it really wasn't very high. It was just above the mountains, or just above where the birds were flying. And so in theory, if you could build a tower up to that height, you could enter into the heavens. You could get into this space of deity. And so uh, some people actually interpret the tower as a real attempt to get to the heavens on their own. Meaning that so far the overall attitude of humanity has been we don't need God or God's kingship. We can rule creation ourselves and perhaps we can get to the heavens on our own. We don't need God for anything. We don't need him to be our king. We don't need his wisdom, love, and guidance. We are completely self-sufficient. We are completely autonomous. We don't need God to define right and wrong. We don't need God to live a full and complete life. We don't even need God to get to heaven. Sound familiar? Because thousands of years later, we seem to pretty much be doing the same thing. We gather in cities, We delight in our technology. We chuck God out the window. We trust in our own ability to define right and wrong far more than we'd ever trust in God's. We still cling to autonomy. We worship self-sufficiency. And we still think we can get to the heavens on our own. 
And we're not building towers made of brick. Our scientific understanding of the world has changed. But our hearts haven't changed a bit. If there is a God, if there is such a thing as heaven, then certainly he'll accept me. Certainly I'm a good person in my own eyes. He wouldn't reject me. I am sufficient within myself. I mean, certainly we don't need God for that. And in fact, I don't need God for anything. I can sit on the throne. I can define good and evil. I can navigate my way through this life. And if there is a need to be saved, then certainly I can save myself. I'm sufficient. I have all that I need. And my goal in life is to work myself into this place where I don't need anyone or anything. That's the dream. Power, control, autonomy. That's what we're after. Therefore, I cannot admit weakness. Therefore, I cannot admit need. I, I can't rely on anything outside of myself. I don't need God. I don't need community. And I certainly don't need the scriptures. It's all up to me. And I can do it on my own. Is it any wonder that our culture is so racked by anxiety? From Adam and Eve to the Tower of Babel and right into the present, we have chosen the way of self-sufficiency. We have seized moral autonomy. In the words of Eugene Peterson, our desire to replace the sovereign God with a sovereign self. And nowhere is that more true than in the modern West. Our goal is to be able to stand in unassisted, prideful rebellion and complete self-sufficiency. And therefore, God's goal is going to be to bring us to our knees and eventually back to him. If you still have your Bibles open, you can turn back with me, if you would, to where we started. I know, it's a lot of flipping, and I'm sorry. Genesis 3, verse 14. This is the last, the last one. There's something here that I want us to see from what we read in the beginning. Uh, in response to human rebellion, in response to humans choosing the way of self-sufficiency, God chooses in love to curse them. Do you ever think about that? Out of his abundant love, God chooses to curse humanity, or more specifically, to curse our purpose. For Adam, God curses the ground. Work is going to be difficult. 
For Eve, God curses childbirth and her relationship with Adam. Those are now complicated and painful. God takes the very places that we will be tempted to turn for purpose and identity outside of him, and he frustrates them. Work is going to be hard. Relationships are going to be hard. Childbirth is going to be painful. Why? Well, we could certainly harp on the justice of God and and the natural consequence of sin. But I think it's just as important to see the love of God in frustrating our self-sufficiency. We are so prideful that if life is easy, we wouldn't look to him. That's our current problem in America. We're not in a major world war. We're surrounded by excess. Most of us live comfortable lives. We've got insurance for anything that can break. And if I find myself in this privileged place, especially within the upper half of American culture, where I'm insulated and protected and secure and insured and life is easy, well then, fantastic. I'm living the dream and I don't need God for anything. I can walk in pride and self-sufficiency. The problem is, that when we think we can do life alone, we usually do. And when we operate in pride and self-sufficiency, when we go the way of Adam and Eve, when we go the way of the Tower of Babel, then we usually chuck God out the window and shoot ourselves in the foot as we do. God is the only source of life in the universe. He's the only source of salvation. He's the only place we can find true and lasting hope. He's the only place we can find true and genuine satisfaction. Nothing else will do. All of our substitutes, all of our idols, as glimmering as they are, as attractive as they seem to us, they will fail. And God approaches to set us free. And yet we feel that resistance in our hearts, don't we? We we feel that bent. We feel that impulse to run the other way. We feel that resistance, that hesitancy to come to God and to be saved and to be healed. We feel the overwhelming desire to, to go the other way and to do things on our own strength instead of God's. We feel the desire to go out and make names for ourselves instead of making God's name great. I I don't think I'm alone in that. But what does God do? He frustrates our activities so that we'll turn back to him and he starts looking for the humble and the faithful starting in the very next chapter with Abraham. And from Abraham forward, he's constantly looking for people 
who will rely on him and not on their own strength. He's constantly looking for people who will set aside their ego and their pride in order to glorify God in their weakness. He's constantly looking for people who will come to the end of themselves so that they can truly begin life with God. For those who are uh, reading the scriptures in a year, we started in September, uh, we just read through Judges and Kings. Uh, And it's not too late for you to join in if you'd like to, Uh, but for those of us who are reading, we're currently in this section of the Old Testament that basically records endless cycles of Israel rejecting God, turning away from Him, trusting in other nations or in their own strength, and then getting slammed with some sort of calamity. And and in the midst of that calamity and in its aftermath as they're suffering, finally they what? They cry out. Finally they cry out to God and that's when God gets to work. That's when he starts doing his best stuff. And then sure enough, they repeat the cycle over and over again. But every time when they come to the end of themselves and they cry out, that's when God starts getting to work. He shows up in their weakness and he does his best work. And it's all over the place from cover to cover in the scriptures. In the book of Judges, uh, which we just read, uh, God chose Gideon to lead Israel at one point, and he chooses Gideon to lead the Israelites in victory over Midian. And you know what Gideon says in response? He says, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. I'm the weakest person, I'm the last person you should choose. And God says, perfect. Perfect. You're the one that I want. And he goes out to face this foreign army. And they prepare for battle, but they're terribly outnumbered. The enemy has two or three times the troops that they do. And do you know what God says? You have too many men. Are you kidding me? I'm already the least of the least. I'm the weakest person here. I'm terribly outnumbered. What do you mean I have too many men? I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, God says, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. And you can hear the chant going up, from the Tower of Babel. And you can hear the drumbeat of the modern secular age. That's it right there. My own strength has saved me. And yet, God seems to have designed life in such a way that we stop looking to our own strength that we come to the end of ourselves, that we get to this place where we're ready to die to ourselves and put off the old and give up the illusion of self-sufficiency. But it's offensive to our ego. It's offensive to our pride. 
We do not enjoy this. We uh, set out to plant this church about two weeks ago, uh, and I had been very well trained up to that point in um, the art of pastoring, in the art of church planting. I, I knew what was supposed to happen. And so I went in uh, very much trusting in my own strength, so to speak. I know what to do. I know how to make this successful. I can get it done. And, and what happened over that first six months to a year, it was just brutal. I, I was better at shrinking the church than I was at growing it. And, and I was pouring myself out. Here's the best of what I have. I know all the strategy. I know what I'm supposed to do. And yet, I kept coming to this place. I finally came to this place where I was just at the end of myself. I said, God, God, it has to be you. It has to be you. I'm, I'm done. I see now how prideful I was. I see now. And, and I came to God in weakness. And finally, things started to happen. I mentioned last week that my wife and I just had our third child uh, three weeks ago. And you guys have been amazing as a community. And a bunch of you have just been loving and supporting and um, bringing meals and um, just helping us get along. And it's been amazing. And, and I love it. And I struggle with it at the same time. And I love it because we need the help. Uh, and you guys have been amazing. And I struggle with it because I think to myself, man, this is, this is backwards. Like, I should, be, I should be serving these people. They shouldn't be serving me. And that sounds really humble, doesn't it? In reality, that's pride. Why am I so resistant to that? Why am I so naturally resistant to people helping us in our hour of need and dropping off meals and doing that stuff? It's because I want to be self-sufficient. And I hate the fact that I'm not. And, and I hate the fact that I love community, but to be completely honest, I wish I didn't need community. And I do. To receive help from someone is, is actually challenging to your pride. It's challenging to your ego. I don't like feeling weak. I don't like feeling limited. I don't like feeling needy. I, I, I don't like any of that. These last few weeks have been humbling because I, I've seen my own weakness. I, I've seen how I've come to the ends of my own strength. It's offended my ego. It's offended my pride. I've come face to face with the fact that I, I'm not in control and I don't have power over everything. And I need the people around me in, in order to survive, in order to thrive. I've been in touch with my own weakness and my own vulnerability. And I think sometimes that's exactly where God wants us to be. God loves to arrange the circumstances of your life so that you will never mistake you for the Savior of you. 
The Apostle Paul is one of the most influential people in all of human history. He's perhaps the greatest follower of Jesus that we know of. And this is what he has to say about self-sufficiency. You may recognize this from earlier. In order to give me, to keep me from becoming conceited or prideful, I was given a thorn in my flesh. We don't know exactly what it is. It, it, many think it was a physical ailment that he's wrestling with. A messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you see how backwards this is? When I am weak, then I am strong. Huh, that's weird. I was always raised to believe that I was strong when I'm strong. It's not what Paul says. Well, I was always raised to believe that I should boast in my accomplishments, in my trophies, in my degrees, in my popularity, in my strength. What does Paul boast in? His weaknesses. I don't even know what that sounds like. I don't know how to do that. I mean, this is insane. We live in a culture that boasts in its strength. We love power. We love control. We love self-sufficiency. We've got comfort. We've got security. We've got insurance. We've got health care. Our army is twice as big as theirs. What do we need God for? We don't need him to be king. We don't need him to define good and evil. I can actually do that better. Thank you very much. I don't need him for daily bread. I don't need him for anything. And if heaven exists, then I will get there on my own. If not by using a tower of brick and mortar, then certainly by my own righteous deeds. I don't need God for anything. And then there's Jesus who has had a greater impact on this world than any other human being who has ever lived. Do you know what he says? On my own, I can do what? Anything? Most things? All things? Nothing. On my own, I can do nothing. That's Jesus talking. Really? Yeah. There was nothing worth doing 
that he could do alone. How about you? Would you stand with me? Before we approach the communion tables, I want us to take a moment uh, to just kind of examine our hearts this morning before God. And uh, for those of us who have gone the way of Adam and Eve and set ourselves up uh, in pride, the invitation this morning is to humble ourselves. Uh, It's to come back to this place uh, of relying on the Father, uh, of trusting in Him. Uh, For those of us who have gone the way of the Tower of Babel and who have set ourselves up in self-sufficiency, the invitation is to come back to reliance and relationship. For those of us in the church who have forsaken humility and weakness and brokenness, thinking them unfit for the victorious Christian walk. The invitation is to repentance this morning, that we would see weakness and vulnerability as signs of his blessing and his presence, as the very places where God wants to meet with you is the very places where where God is ready to do his best work. Because if we're honest, the American church idolizes strength as much as anyone else. You pay attention to what we boast in. Even as church leaders, we have it completely backwards. And so for those who have made control and power, and strength, and self-sufficiency their dream, the invitation this morning is simply to dream bigger, to come back to the cross, to come back to Jesus, and to redefine what this life is supposed to be about. To come to him in our weakness, seeing it as an advantage, to come to him in our brokenness and in our helplessness, knowing that that's where God does some of his best work. We come to him in our confusion, with our doubts, with our pains, with our burdens, with our questions, knowing that we have nothing to hide. No reason left that we can't be honest with God and others. There's no sense pretending. Pretending only hinders the kingdom. It's just truth. So we come to the tables this morning recognizing that God doesn't just accept the weak things of this world. He actually seeks them out. We'll end with this. Paul's words to the church. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, 
so that no one may boast before him. No one. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning in our honesty, in our brokenness, in our humility. We come exactly how we are, recognizing that we come from a culture and and in some ways even a church culture that values strength over weakness and boasts in the wrong things. And we ask God that in the power of your spirit, in the words of Paul, that we might become less so that you can become more. That, that we might see relationship with you and reliance in you and trust in you and, and even our own weakness as, as beauty in the kingdom. And so we humble ourselves now, God, as, before we go to the tables, I'm, I'm the first one here to repent of my pride, to repent of my self-sufficiency, to repent of my deep desire to make a name for myself or for this church or for anything else that's not you. And yet, as we approach the tables this morning, Jesus, we we see you with open arms, welcoming in the weak and the broken and the vulnerable and the honest who know who they are and know who you long to be for us. We come to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.